Welcome back to Super Sentai Buddies. This is episode four of the Spider-Man Who Loved Me, the internet's best and maybe only podcast dedicated to the Toei production of Spider-Man. Every week we watch an episode of the show and we share our thoughts with you, the listener. My name is producer Mark and with me as always is my co-host and buddy Brian. Brian, how you doing today? Doing pretty well. Anything exciting going on? No. Nothing exciting <laughs> is going on here in uh, whatever normal week, month, or year this episode happens to drop. It is a very average, generic day of the week. Not even worth really mentioning which specific day of the week it is. Right. There's no reason. Nor mentioning any holidays that might or may not be around the current time you're hearing this episode. Right. It's just an average, everyday day here in the same week that you, the listener, are listening to us. Right. This is not a pre-recording stashed away for emergencies. <laughs> so, before jumping into this week's five stars, which I will apologize to you for, that was a disaster of a pick. I was not thinking. that It is a disaster of a pick because... Lem I'll, I'll be honest, there's going to be qualifiers around how we approach this. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there in a second. But before okay. we do that, I thought we'd do another installment of uh, Matt and Dave J history lessons. That sounds great. Um, do you also want to apologize because you never tell me what story we're going to visit until right here in this second? <laughs> I feel like it keeps it more fun to just get your reactions to it. I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> Maybe someday you can pick the story. I don't know. Okay. Anyway. I don't know how many of these we're going to do. I mean, we're, we're, we're fun people to hang out with, but it's not like we had a sequence of, you know, we're not Indiana Jones or anything. Right. We hung out and talked about right. nerdy philosophy and played video games. Right. That's what most of our stories we, we, we are. We did not have a sequence of uh, bizarrely grand adventures. Also, you've you've kind of thrown the additional weight of telling a story that involves both Matt and Dave. Well, this which... one doesn't. This oh, one is okay. a Dave J exclusive. Okay. Uh, I mean, it features Matt very briefly, but it is it is focused on Dave. So, sophomore year. The dark times, as I refer to them. <laughs> the, uh, as, as regular listeners of the program will know, Matt and Dave are brothers. Matt is... A uh, year and a half or so younger than Dave and a grade below him. So freshman year, you and I and Dave met. Yep. We met Matt on like some family visit day, but we started hanging out with Matt sophomore year when he came to the same college that we did. Early on, and I can't remember exactly how early, but it was very early, our mutual friend Aaron showed up in our room and basically rallied all of the male friends that he could find nearby. Mm -hmm. And that included Dave, Matt, uh, our, our other mutual friend, Eric, who was also a freshman and very new some, some other folks that we didn't know well, but it was, it was largely our group of friends. Aaron showed up in the dorm and was like, Hey guys, just all of my guy friends follow me. We end up at the girl's dorm in the like rec room beneath it. And Katie, Another lovely human being who's a friend of all of ours, it turns out, is recruiting for a dance program. Orcasus. Orcasus, yeah. Katie's a great dancer. She she ended up running Orcasus, I believe, at some point. She has is is preparing for the first semester dance program, and she needs basically what amounts to like background dancers, and Orcasus doesn't have a large male population. So right. she has conscripted Aaron to sort of rally the troops and see who he can beggar into this. Most of us just turned around and said, no, thank you. We are not dancers and we are not going to be roped into this thing. For reasons that I'll never quite grasp, other than it must have sounded interesting to him, Dave J. decided to volunteer. And some of it really is to give a lot of credit to Dave. He's just a very good friend, better than the rest of us who turned our backs and were like, oh, no, that's not a thing we want to do. Dave agrees after getting an idea of the part that he has been offered. I don't I don't know that Dave would have agreed if it was just like show up and do this goofy dance routine. But the dance was structured around the popular, I guess is the right word. I, I don't just well known. It's structured around Copacabana, the song Copacabana. Yep. And Dave is playing Rico. Yep. This mobster basically yep. and his entire role in the song is basically to like saunter onto stage mm -hmm. 
take immediate ownership of the room based on nothing but the strength of his own charisma. Which, and as just, like, listeners can probably attest, um, as listeners can attest, Dave can totally do. Yeah, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring up this story. To give you listeners an idea, the personality that Dave carries on the podcast is pretty much Dave in real life. Like, there's not there's not a lot of difference between Radio Dave and Real Life Dave. He's just that guy. One of the best humans I know, one of the best friends I know, but also he just has that kind of, that very specific sort of charisma that lets him pull that off extraordinarily well. And it's just a fun Dave memory, because I went to see it. I'm, I'm, I was not good enough of a friend to go dance in that thing. Well, no. But I, I was mean... good enough of a friend to, to go with the low-level friend commitment of watching it. And my dudes, Dave J was just cool. He walked onto that stage, he looked around, he owned the room, and then he sat there in a chair and looked cool. It was great. It was, it was a really phenomenal moment. And then shot that guy. And then he shot that guy, and he was fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that is that is the start and end of that story. It is just one of my... It is one of those images that just kind of lodges in your brain, and I thought it would be a fun one to share with the listener. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, in amongst his many other uh, accomplishments in college, Dave J, totally a dancer. He can put that on his resume. I don't know that he did any actual dancing. There must have been a couple of steps. I don't know. Uh, if you count walking to a bar table with doing no dancing moves steps, then yes. <laughs> so this week for our five stars, I had texted Brian a few hours before the show began. Almost three times the amount of warning you got last week. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Not last week, last time. Who knows? Last how time, yeah, right. Was. Yep, yep, this is... <laughs> We didn't think we needed another emergency episode in the can. This is this is just, well, of course, last week, because we do this every week. And I was in the process of fixing up some kitchen chairs. We finally got uh, chairs for our dining room table. Mm -hmm. It's a nice set. We got uh, we got eight really nice chairs to put around it, but we got them at like a resale shop. So I had to tighten them up a little bit. You know how it goes. Yeah. So I was in the middle of doing that. I grabbed my phone. I texted you and I said, hey, let's just talk about. Uh, video game RPGs for our five stars. Right. My thoughts were, it's already five o'clock. I haven't put a lot of thought into this. I need to pick something that's super familiar to me that I can talk about real casually. Right. That was a disaster choice. That was there a disaster choice. Of those things. I mean, we're going to have qualifications out the wazoo on this. The fact that RPG is almost... Like not a distinct genre anymore. Yeah, we should have we should have picked a clean subgenre or at least like framed it around a decade. Maybe I could have said, let's pick the best five RPG franchises. No, right, I didn't right. do any of those things. Right. Or, you know, some of these will have qualifications. Some of these will be a qualification. Like, uh, if you excise these parts of this game, then it's there. Yeah, that was... <laughs> right. Yeah. So so maybe in future episodes, we will codify and take a different crack at this. Look at it from a different angle, narrow in or something. Yeah. I'm sure this that... This time, this is just a sort of off-the-cuff five. We're not even going to say these are either of our five personal all-time favorites but there are five that are going to be in our top list right yeah in our top list maybe this top list will skip over a couple of the ones that would also be in the top list five ones that we wanted to note to you the listener yes because we didn't think through this topic well enough yeah these, so these are five very fun rpg games <laughs> i will say my top qualifier is i took out the legend of zelda from the discussion altogether okay because otherwise I would have just been sitting here like, well, oh, fifth star is Breath of the Wild and fourth star is Wind Waker and third star is Link to the Past. <laughs> that's, nobody that's, needs that. That's, that's probably ridiculous. fair. Uh, I for... may have got us in some hot water by suggesting Minish Cap because Minish Cap might crack my top five Zelda games. And that's pretty uh, uh, that's, that's a pretty divisive mm. opinion. But that's uh, not what yeah, we're well, doing. We could have done like right. top five Zelda games. We could have done top five Final Fantasy games. Right. Nope. Here we are. We could have done like top five Bethesda games even. Nope. Yeah. So, Brian, what's your fifth star? Um, well, in in no particular order, and now that we've like re-gone through these categories, I'm uh, this uh, this list. I'm gonna actually throw a plug out there for 
beloved and many say overrated Final Fantasy VII. I will go on record to say I like it better than six. Why? Because six has has a problem that some other RPGs have, which is like 50 characters or whatever. It's not 50, but it's like 14 or 15. That's too many. I need it more focused. And, you know, we're both in the correct age demographic for seven. Yeah, seven hit at just the right time. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I still kind of like the material system. I know it's clunky. It's not the best, but there's there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in that title. And that's probably going to be something that is flowing through these, like wrapped in (laughs) nostalgia, maybe shinier, shinier than they should be. Well, it it tried and almost universally succeeded visually, visual graphics aside, at at, at translating Final Fantasy out of the 16-bit era and ensuring that it would survive. And that's great. Also, I would say probably in total the most memorable soundtrack to any of those. That may be true. You may be correct about that. Like other other entries have uh, some top level songs. The overworld theme to six is quite possibly the best. Mm. But just on sheer volume of excellent music, I'd say I'd say seven has has the most concentrated amount. I am going to burn my fifth star on what I think is the only... Well, that's not accurate. Anyway, I'm going to burn my my fifth star on a game called Grandia. Did you ever play Grandia? I did not play Grandia. Are you at least familiar with it? I am aware of Grandia. Grandia was a PlayStation game that still lived in that kind of the silver age of JRPGs. So if you imagine a traditional JRPG, JRPG, you basically imagine like Final Fantasy VI, right? That's kind of what you <laughs> call to mind. Right. And Grandia is probably, and I may get in some trouble for saying this, the best of the imitators of that very specific style. So Final Fantasy VI in a lot of ways is the flag bearer for that kind of JRPG. And Grandia, I may even like it better than Final Fantasy VI, honestly, but it is, it is... It is the JRPG as you imagine it in the 16-bit era at its peak. So we're into PlayStation. We've been making this style of game for a while. And it's just your basic story. You know, it's a, it's a fantasy world with a lot of, like, there's emerging technology. There's a ton of exploration. The big arc of the story is about finding the old civilization that yours is built around. Like, it, it's full of tropes. It is just kind of, it does them all at a very high percentage. Does that make sense? So it's not like an innovative game in mm-hmm. any way. Yep. It is just a standout at all of the things you want that specific game type to do. Mm-hmm. Moving on, star number four. Yeah, uh, for me, uh, the original Mass Effect. Ooh. Like, I, and yeah, the mechanics, the mechanics of the game are better in two and three. But, like, the core RPG-ness and the reason why you care about everything in 2 and 3, mm-hmm. that's all from all of the good work that 1 does. I mean, there's there's a reason why Commander Shepard is up there amongst some of the greatest RPG protagonists of all time. Yeah, no doubt. I am actually going to see you right where you live and answer my fourth star. As I had it written down, I kid you not. Mm-hmm. First Dragon Age game. Mm, yeah. For very similar also reasons. Also a strong entry. Uh, later games, well, Dragon Age 2 struggled a lot. Yeah. Uh, but they would figure out the engine, they would figure out the style better later. But it just lived in a space, that, like the story was so great, it was so dark and gothic, and the story had such a concentration on this really focused narrative, and everything just felt critical all the time. Everything yep. was driven, yeah. And the characters were fantastic. It was it was open. It was interactive. It just it was the most pure fun I had had playing a Western RPG maybe ever. Mm, yeah. All right, let's keep it rolling. Star number three. Uh, speaking of, uh, things that are spiritual successors to other things, (laughs) the best Final Fantasy game that isn't a Final Fantasy game, Bravely Default, Flying Fairy. Oh, yeah. Uh, on, 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 it, so, it's funny, 
looking back at all the JRPGs and like, yep, it was all grindy. And yeah, there were a lot of just kind of, you know, paint by the numbers conventions and tropes. Mm -hmm. But there was something comforting about them, especially because we played them all when they were new. (laughs) Yeah. So when Bravely Default came around and it was... It's not entirely a throwback to those things, but it was more evocative of the feel of those things than really the Final Fantasy franchise has been in, I don't know, four games, five games. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is not worth digging into because this isn't what the podcast is about, but as you well know, that originally started out as... A final, a straight Final Fantasy game, and then they kind of moved it sideways, right? And I, th- I think the melding of those two things uh, really, really did it good. And from a story perspective, who boy, like it starts out feeling like okay, well, we're we're four warriors going to like find four crystals. Got it. Check, check, check. And then it just at a certain point, and. and Rarely do I care about spoiling things that are many years old, but I ain't going to do it because if there's someone out there who hasn't played this game, this surprise is worth keeping. At a certain point, that game just goes off the rails and it becomes incredible. And it it is and it's uh, for similar reasons um, to not spoil anything. It has one of my all time favorite moments, and it's something that Mm. it, it. it's weird because it's something that I don't think every person would get because it just happened like through the game mechanics that work this way. But yeah, ah, it was yeah. so good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, it has uh, an iteration of the job system, which was always my favorite. Like of all of the Final Fantasy systems of leveling characters, the job system was always my favorite, but they never stuck it in a good game. I do love me some job system. If Star 3 is the spiritual successor star, I will put my Star 3 as Xenoblade Saga. Okay. Which, or Xenoblade Chronicles, rather. Mm Mm-hmm which in a lot of ways is the spiritual successor to the old Xenogears titles. It was a Nintendo Wii title, Mm -hmm. and it was a new JRPG. So as we've mentioned, much like uh, Bravely Default for a lot of reasons, the JRPG genre got real stuck in a rut for a real long time and got badly surpassed by the West. Yep. And Xenoblade Chronicles was a game that hit, and it, it, it lived very proudly in the JRPG space. It wasn't a Western game, but it moved it forward in a lot of really significant ways. It was huge. The plot was great and, like, appropriately ridiculous. Uh, The world was giant and sweeping. It still played like a JRPG, but finally felt like, okay, we're breaking out of those tropes and we're, we're... this genre maybe isn't dead. Maybe we can bring this thing back. And I know it wasn't the only game doing that. I'm not saying it's the only game that brought back the JRPG, but it was one of the big players in that space. Yep. And uh, much to my uh, eternal shame, I never finished it. Well, because it was huge. It it was huge and, you know, and I'm I'm real bad at... um, I'm real bad at picking up RPGs in the middle if I've let them lie fallow for more than, like, two weeks. Uh, so yeah, someday, someday. I, I currently have Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for the Nintendo Switch just waiting for me, but I'm not even starting that bad boy until I finish the book project. It just isn't, yeah, isn't worth it. Yep. Uh, so moving aside from the spiritual successor star, what is star number two? Well, we, uh, you had talked about Dragon Age, which is the spiritual successor to my number two, which is Baldur's Gate 2. Oh, oh, well struck. I, well struck. Cause, and, and this was a game that I played. I first played it in college, like freshman year, uh, through various and sundry means of playing video games. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like this, this is kind of the pinnacle of the old era of uh, top-down RPGs. Yeah, that kind of, of isometric style. Yeah, yeah. This was... Yeah, and the the little sequel, uh, Throne of Ball, is fine, and the game before sure. it, Baldur's Gate, but Baldur's Gate two specifically that that's <laughs> uh, Minsk and Boo stand ready. It's just there have everything you would want out of that kind of game. 
in the advent of the Steam era of computer gaming, there have been a number of titles produced that harken back to that style, and I will play all of them just because I love it so I'm much. I'm currently in the middle of playing through Pillars of Eternity. Pillars uh, of Eternity is so good. Yeah. Holy like it's, cow. I, I was playing, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this genre isn't dead, or at least I'm contributing money to this genre, but yeah. Um, Baldur's Gate 2. My number two star is maybe the biggest reach for me on the board, Mm -hmm. but I committed hundreds of hours to this franchise, so I had to put one of them on there. It is Might and Magic 5, The Dark Side of Zine. Okay. So not Heroes of Might and Magic, which ultimately eclipsed and became the much more prominent of the Might and Magic franchises. Right. But Might and Magic was one of the first games in the like Dungeons and Dragons-esque rpg space for computers right that's uh you're you're walking around in kind of a first person view yeah first person perspective you've got a party of four that you get to pick mm-hmm. race you pick your race your class uh you assign them weapons you're wandering around like finding magic weapons trading out weapons for better weapons you're picking up healing spells you're managing your your hit points it's it's and all of the things you fight are very evocative of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. It, it's just what it is. It's the, it's one of the first games that managed to put that to a visual medium. And uh, and for its time, they were huge. You could they were dozens of hours long, each of them. Mm-hmm. And my father and I used to play them together when I was a lad, which is also part of why I love them so much. I like I like the use of uh, when I was a lad because if the rest of this game list hasn't indicated that we are old people who like old people video games (laughs) hey we threw xenoblade saga in there that's true um before one star okay before i get to my number one star i do have an honorable mention because i feel real bad for not having in the top five which again is because we screwed up thinking through this category i have to honorable mention skies of arcadia i have you covered okay cool good we can talk about it there my number one is Chrono Trigger. Yeah. Chrono yeah, Trigger. That's, that's one that I didn't even think about, and I am a dummy. I'm glad you have me covered on that front. Yeah. it's. I don't know what you can say about Chrono Trigger that hasn't already been said. Right. I, I don't know how to pitch Chrono Trigger to someone who didn't discover Chrono Trigger. I don't even know how you would properly like remake or even sequelize Chrono Trigger. I realize there is a sequel, Chrono Cross. It is about 700 times not as good as Chrono Trigger. <laughs> For the reason, like the reasons that I was down on FF6 about having too many characters that you don't care about when I said 50 and said that was an exaggeration. I don't think that's an exaggeration in Chrono cross they have like 40 or something and nearly all those characters are interchangeable <laughs> that that game needed an editor yeah you're but, right though but that chrono is, trigger oh, what a game. Oh, so good i i have played it through at least like five times every every couple of years it's a game that i will go back to I'm going to I'm going to hit my number 1 star and then we'll take a minute just to throw out some real quick not even talking about them honorable mentions. Yep. Uh, my number 1 star which is on there with a bullet is Skies of Arcadia. And it's not necessarily my favorite RPG. Mm-hmm. It's certainly like a for real top 5 for sure. Yeah. And it it's juggling up there for my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's it's much like I was saying about how uh Grandia was kind of peak classic JRPG. Mm-hmm. Skies of Arcadia is probably right in that space. And and honestly, not too many years after, I don't think, a handful of years later. Yeah. But it's a JRPG. You're Sky Pirates, though, and a lot of what it has going for it, aside from the world, which just Sky Piracy is amazing, right. is the characters. It's a, it's a pretty small list of characters, but they're all just so good. I love every one of those characters so much. Yep. And it it is a game that is so deserving of a sequel, even yeah. a spiritual successor. It's just begging for it. Yeah, I don't understand how. And I'm sure if you know more about video games, tweet us, tell us. There's probably a reason a sequel didn't happen, but I don't know what it is. So we just we live in is, unjust fallen world. Yeah, that's what it is. The fall of man. Yep. <laughs> so just for purposes of real quick honorable mention i want to i want to throw out uh secret of mana and earthbound just so people don't get mad that we didn't talk about them yep 
Uh, I will also throw out um, Skyrim specifically and yeah. also uh, Fallout New Vegas. Uh, Valkyria Chronicles, whether or not you really count that as an RPG, is an excellent game. And uh, I'm also a big fan of Radiant Historia. And a real quick nod to Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga, probably the best of the Mario RPGs. Excellent. I'm sure we've compiled a list that no one will argue with, and they value our metrics. This is actually a thing I like, so if you uh, if you are listening to this and care to tell me what your favorites are, you can hit me at R-O-R-A-D-I-O, R-O-Radio, on the Twitters. I would love to hear about it. I think that's right. I will edit that if that is not my Twitter handle. It's <laughs> good. It's good. We're so we're, that, we're really doing this professional show here. We are. We're we're top-notch professionals. Yep. So that discussion that you and I could probably have for what a dozen hours? Yeah. Well, I mean more? this it it had to be low prep cuz we said 5 and then obviously we threw out like 20. <laughs> I I did put skies with a question mark only because I thought it might appear on your list. So I was prepared to put Secret of Mana up there if you did. <sighs> yeah, 5 is too limiting even with it the is. even with I the apologize to you and to the listeners. This was a dumb category. Yeah, thanks. But what th- what is not dumb is Spider-Man. So we this are going to particular take... episode, maybe. Oh, you may be right. So we're going to take a real quick break, and we will be right back to talk to you about Spider-Man Episode Four: The Deadly Merman, the Thread of Silver Miracles. Change the apart. All right, and we are back. That was. You are right, Brian. That one was a little dumb. There, there are. Uh... There, there are some real, real gaping plot holes in this one. <laughs> it is still, though, Japanese Spider-Man with its ridiculous, like, 70s cinematography mm-hmm. and smooth jazz soundtrack. That soundtrack, that's a high point. That soundtrack is incredible. Every week, that sound I can't... It makes me smile. I, I start the episode, the theme song kicks in, we get, hey, 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 yeah... Yeah, 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 wow. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, 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 wow. It's just so, it's so good. The theme song is, and then throughout, like the the background music, everything. Always, so even when it's a dumb episode, thoroughly enjoyable episode. Mm -hmm. Would you like to, Brian, uh, and I'll cover it if you don't want to, but this is such a delicious thing. I'm going to hand it over to you. Would you like to tell us, we open on our two lead bad guys discussing their devious plot for this week. Would you like to share with the listener what that devious plot is? Well, uh, I'll I'll try to summon it as best I can. So they have like lots of footage on Spider Man, and they're going to fill uh, put all this footage into like a 1960s computer with job cards and everything, and they're basically going <laughs> job to have cards. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're you know punch cards for for nineteen sixties yeah. <laughs> computers to read, and um yeah they're just gonna put it all in the computer and it's going to mathematically figure out the best like kill Spider Man computer program. Do you remember the scene in Willy Wonka where the programmer is trying to get his computer to tell him where to find the fifth golden ticket? Uh, vaguely. It's pretty much this exact same scene. So the cut scenes from like the reels and the computer levers and the job cards. and It's just great. It is a beautiful look at, at 70s era computer technology. And my favorite thing about it is they print it out and put it in a book. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this weird book of fates, which I don't know why we called it the book of fate or whatever, but... <laughs> Nope, this is this is the ironclad instruction manual on how to kill Spider-Man. I had my computer write the book of fate for Spider-Man. You know, it's not unlike Alistair Smythe creating Spider-Slayers. <laughs> it's That's true. There, there was actually a window at the beginning of this episode where I was trying to decide if they were using the computer to design a villain specifically capable of defeating Spider-Man. I was unsure of that. I'm going to go with 
this is the villain we had and that was just one of their inputs. What yeah, is the best I, I way for this villain true. to kill Spider-Man? Because what this felt much more like is they were trying to cook up an inevitable path that would lead to his death. Yes. Anyway, so, so that that happens. That is that is Professor Monster and the Amazonas doing that. Meanwhile, our boy Spider-Man, whose name is Takoya, you may recall, yep. wakes up from a nightmare. The nightmare he, apparently was what we just saw. Yeah, I think the nightmare, I was, did it happen off screen or did he have a nightmare about what was happening in real life, I think is what happened? I think so. So he wakes up from a nightmare, goes down to have breakfast with his family, checks the paper because it's the 1970s. Right. Man in the house just reads his morning paper. I love it. Which also, he's reading the morning paper. It's clearly light. Does he just sleep until 11 in the morning? Well, yeah, he's up late fighting crime. Yeah, I guess. Which also, (laughs) like... Does his little brother ever actually go to school or anything? No. No. I think the government does not know about this boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he's reading the paper and someone has published an obituary for Spider-Man. It turns out Spider-Man died two days ago and there will be a presumably public funeral tomorrow, June 7th. Apparently, they just take your money and like, yeah, sure, whatever you want to put in the paper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you'd think, given that we know this paper is keen on producing pictures and stories of Spider-Man, there might have been a little bit of investigation going into the announcement of his death in the paper? Nope. Just just throw down some money. Uh, Seeing as Spider-Man is reading the paper, he is somewhat suspicious about this funeral. (laughs) Yeah. But it does tell us where the funeral is going to be. So Spider-Man gets on with his investigation. And takes his girlfriend with him. Yes. We grab Hitomi, who, as you may recall, is a crackerjack photographer who also sort of wants to be an investigative reporter. Right. At the Weekly Woman. Yes. And she may, in fact, be an investigative photographer, if there is such a thing. I think if you don't have enough money to pay two people to do the news reporting job, there is. And really, (laughs) isn't that what Peter Parker does? I mean, no, because Parker never actually writes a story. Uh, Jameson's always writing the stories. He just brings pictures, pictures of Spider-Man. So so Hitomi and Takoya go to the church of like St. Peter or St. Jude or something. And the priest tells them that a woman just showed up and asked him to perform Spider-Man's funeral tomorrow. That That's that. She just showed up and said, hey, you know Spider-Man, that superhero who's in the newspapers all the time? He died a couple of days ago. Would would you? Right. And he's super Catholic. His funeral? Yeah, it turns out, turns out Spider-Man's real religious. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah, we we actually don't get much information here other than, yeah, some lady came in. No, I don't have contact information. I'm actually really into the idea of Spider-Man being a devout Catholic. <laughs> I mean, Daredevil already is, so like they've got it's someone exploring enough, yeah. that. <laughs> someone with a very similar power set. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, Takoya processes this information. Uh, Hitomi a, puts in a call to the paper because she works for them to see what they know about it. Right. Um, also, Hitomi does ponder, like, maybe this woman who put this call in is Spider-Man's beautiful girlfriend. Yeah, she is. She is clearly kind of into Spider-Man. Well, I, I can see why, because her boyfriend decides to ride off on his bike and be you know, one with himself. Um, That was her ride, too. Yeah. He just just abandons her there there at the church, thinking about Spider-Man and Spider-Man's beautiful mystery girlfriend. Right. You know what part of my problem with this is? Other than, you know, that's just rude. Every time he does this and leaves her to find her own way elsewhere, he's never riding off to crime. He's riding off to think deeply about crime. Yeah. 
he's going off-roading on his motorbike. That's what's going on right now. Ah, Spider-Man. He's just going to go do some donuts in the mud. (laughs) Uh, But while he's doing donuts in the mud, it's time. It's, uh... It's time for the merman to appear out of nowhere and just start drowning teens. Yeah, it's Monster Bem time, you guys. Everyone wants to know who the Monster Bem of the week is, or Machine Bem, rather. This is Machine Bem Merman. Not that kind of merman. No. Nope. He just, uh, it's more a creature from the Blue Lagoon. Yeah, that's, that's very accurate. He looks much more like, you know, pick your random ball-eyed fish villain from 1970s comic books that's that's pretty much him yeah and uh like 1970s villains also does not like teens making out yeah in the best tradition of classic monster movies he does not like teenagers in love nope and he definitely drowns <laughs> both of them <laughs> so so there are these two teenagers out like rowing a canoe on the lake at night Because that's what you do. Maybe that sounds romantic to you, listener. Maybe it does. As a guy who who grew up on the water, like this is what my family did for vacations all of the time. I mean, I didn't like I'm not Jesus. I wasn't walking on the water. But as a guy who spent all of his life vacationing near the water, there's certainly a lot of romance to the outdoors. Boats are great. You know, lakeside picnics, all of that real good. Don't canoe at night. The mosquitoes will eat you alive. It, that, that is not romantic. Right. It's horrible. Every, Don't do that thing. Everything about the wilderness during the day that is wonderful, the wilderness during the night is an awful, terrible, scary place where things <laughs> will kill you. Yeah. I mean, you know, you do you. Follow your bliss. If that's your dream, go for it. But uh, you, like, put on some heavy water-resistant uh, mosquito spray before you do. So he does, But the, the creature from the Blue Lagoon... I like that name. We're sticking with it. Okay. It'll make it very hard to remember that his name is Merman, but all right. (laughs) He does have like a a bluish color palette. He rocks their canoe over to knock them into the water and then drowns them just by like putting his hand on (laughs) their head and pushing them under the surface of the water. Yeah. So, so far his powers are... Uh, a slightly stronger than this small woman and small man. Yeah, it's it's a great, and he does it both at the same time. So he's just got like a skull in each hand as though he's palming a basketball. Yep. And it's not even like they're, I mean, they are struggling, but he shows no signs of that. He just like pushes down. It's, just, it, it's, it's a real chill move. It's real casual. Yeah. And now we're at the news place. Yep. Apparently it's the following day. And editor Yoshida, who you may or may not remember, is secretly the Amazonist for some inexplicable reason, (laughs) has assigned her Cracker Jack photographer to go get a picture of that water monster. Right. Also is real cash about like, yeah, this water monster drowned two teens. It's sad. Uh, If you could get some pictures, (laughs) that'd be great. I I am waiting for the reveal to figure out why the Amazonist is working this particular plan. Uh, I'm sure that it's going to be intricately plotted. <laughs> so Hitomi goes to her boyfriend Takoya's house, hoping that he would come along basically kind of as protection, right? Because she's going out in the middle of the night to take a picture of a giant monster who loves killing teenagers. Yeah, she's no dummy. Right, but he's not home. Because it turns out he is on his own personal stakeout. Right. Didn't help those teens last night, though. So, you know, Spider-Man's, <laughs> Spider-Man's not doing too hot. I have questions about Spider-Sense and how and why and when it chooses to work. Uh, and why that Hitomi is actually going to do a way better job of finding the monster than he will. Yeah. He's so... like half a mile away. <laughs> so there are... Some kids making out in the car, like you do. I, I, I'm an old man now. I don't know if that is still a thing. I presume that is still a trope. I that uh, was that was still a trope when I was in my twenties. Right. So kids are making out in the car, like you do, overlooking the lake, wisely with their windows up, so the mosquitoes aren't getting these dummies. <laughs> 
feel like you had very different problems than I did. <laughs> All of my problems with this episode are mosquito based. Right. I, I, I've been thrown out, out, I think we were both thrown out of a park by cops uh, in separate occasions. That I have never correct. been attacked by mosquitoes. <laughs> so, so, these kids are naked in the car. Mm-hmm. Hitomi shows up, also at the car, or by a car, rather. She, she drives in, and she is on her way to that car. When the water bubbles again and our merman attacks. Yep. There's a great moment before he attacks, though, where he's playing peekaboo in the water. Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Hatomi looks over her shoulder and he, like, quick ducks under the water to hide. The problem with those quick ducks are they're always, he quickly ducks. It still takes about 10 seconds to do so. <laughs> so it's completely inexplicable how you could not have seen him. Yeah, she should have been watching him duck under the water. But yeah. <laughs> the cops show up and it's like, all right, OK, the cops are here. This is going to be great. Like, <laughs> how, how many how many sequences uh, of seconds did you think it would be great before you realize that these cops may be the dumbest cops we have seen in this program <laughs> so far? Yeah, basically long enough for the camera to focus on the face of one of the cops. Like, oh. Oh, these guys. But they just show up. They're like, hey, guys, how's it going? I think these are probably night watchmen. I'm not clear that yeah. they're with the actual police. You're probably right. And Hitomi says, like, I'm, I'm fine. Go away. And they just leave. <laughs> they're not very good night watchmen. No, they just, they're just out of there. Now, pretty much the minute the cops walk away, so they haven't had time to go very far, I would like to point out. Yeah, well, you know. They haven't had time to cover almost any distance. The monster attacks. Yep. Hatomi, the hero, snaps a few pictures. Right. Apparently no good pictures, though, unfortunately. Yeah, didn't work out. The cops, nowhere to be seen. Apparently not real good cops. No. Takoya... From what I can tell, on the complete other side of the lake. Right. Not real good Spider-Manning either. Only the monster least... is doing a good job right now. Yeah. Pretty successful monster, all things considered. But he does at least hear the scream, and he goes into Spider-Man sneak mode. Right. Which involves, like, walking uh, walking sideways. Like, doing a, <laughs> a sachet sideways dance move. Uh, I'm I'm into it. Um, it's the best comical theater sneaking. It's this weird, like, halfway crouch sideways crab walk sidle. Yeah. He eventually discovers Hitomi unconscious, not dead, which means the monster isn't doing a real good job either. So this is this is just an off night for everybody. Do you remember how he finds Hitomi? No. With his night vision. Oh, <laughs> you mean his day for night vision? <laughs> Spider-Man has night vision. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> which which means what Spider-Man sees is what the audience sees. <laughs> that is astoundingly not the most surprising Spider-Man power we will discover in these 3 minutes. No. No. He also has he, uh... weird detection. Yeah, he looks around, he sees Hitomi unconscious, he sees uh the unnamed girlfriend making out in the car unconscious right and he says i'm sure the cops will get him yeah well i think the narrator actually says yeah that. yeah yeah maybe because in editing they realized that spider-man just walked away from his unconscious girlfriend god he's a real real bad boyfriend the narrator spackles over it by saying <laughs> certain that these girls will be rescued by the police <laughs> spider-man the the police who just hightailed it out of there those ones yeah. Spider-Man now uses his spider detector to track the merman. Which does not detect spiders. <laughs> no, it does not. I don't know how long he's had this device. Presumably, it's just part of that bracelet thing, like yeah. the wrist thing that he has. Is is this like in the most recent Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man is just discovering all of the gadgets like one by one? I think that is the case. So he uses the spider detector, which the narrator explains is like ultrasonic rays or something. 
<laughs> yeah. It detects footprints is what it detects. <laughs> yeah. And he tracks the merman into just like an industrial office building. Right. Now, I want to know, did he track him to the building and then he went into the vents? Or did he track this merman into the vents? <laughs> I don't know why Spider-Man is in the vents. It's amazing. He's crawling. He looks ahead with the aid of his ultrasonic spider vision. He sees up ahead a cage, not in the vent, but directly underneath the vent. He sees it right several yards away. He sees this cage. Yep. He has identified there is a cage. Yep. A few. And he just crawls into that sucker. Right. Well, he crawls forward and falls, which wait a minute. Why aren't you sticking to like the roof of this vent? You're, this is you're a spider. Yeah, this is this is like your whole deal. You have sticky All, hands. Yeah. you have webs. What you, are you doing? You just fall into a vent, which I will uh, out of a vent into a cage. Was I'll note the 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 opening of this cage. I'm I, I don't see one. I don't actually know how he fell through the vent into the cage. That no. cage doesn't have a clo- a an there open is not top, like a trap that snap, uh, like a trap door that snaps shut on him or anything. Nope, he just falls into it is a just magical a cage. cage. Yeah, Amazonus and Professor Monster are here, which and they exp- go ahead. It, no, I was just gonna say this is the first time that all of these people actually meet. Yeah, it's a weird meeting too. It's it's kind of casual. Yeah. And they just explain they're holding this this kind of fancily bound book. Yep. And they say, this is the Spider-Man book of fate. Yep. You're... It's an actual book, you guys. They printed it out and bound it in leather. Right. Like, so uh, you're going to have a death match with Merman. It's all in this fate book. Fate's something you can never escape. And uh, here's Machine Ben Merman. And then they ring the bell like it's a boxing match. It's amazing. This is Hell in a Cell, you guys. And also, inexplicably, Merman has, like, sharpened blades on his arm fins. Yeah, turns out those fins are deadly weapons with several inch long blades hiding inside them. Right, you know, like all mer creatures. Right. Well-known fish ability deadly steel blades in their fins yep anyway then they just like professional wrestler in like i said it's it's basically hell in a cell or rage in a cage if yep. you prefer yep For, uh, like, just rolling around doing some wrestling moves yeah amazonas is clearly turned on by this yeah it's weird yeah a lot of this in here is weird <laughs> Yep, there is a point where Spider-Man absolutely gets pimp slapped, <laughs> yeah. just like backhanded across the face. And, and then Spidey starts to remember that this was part of his earlier nightmare. Yeah, because says, of, oh no, I nightmared this. Right, which now suggests that in addition to his other powers, Spider-Man also has not just spider sense for near foresight, but like other foresight oh no i I saw this in a dream i had i can see into the future yeah yeah this version of spider-man has way more powers than our version of (laughs) spider-man he does in proper wrestling fashion announce himself as the emissary from hell spider-man yep that well-known emissary of hell right the ninders are all crowded around watching it's pretty great actually and ultimately, so he's getting sliced up. He will later say that he was one hit away from death. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, he tricks Merman with a move that is very familiar to you and I, Brian, because we very recently watched Aeolus using this move to great effect yep. in Hercules' The Legendary Journeys. Indeed. Which is, I'm going to stand here, and then right before you hit me, I'm going to jump, and you're going to crash into the thing behind me. Yeah, because what he, what he ends up doing is moving out of the way once so that Merman actually slices through the bars. and those then are some wicked steel blades. Yeah, and then jumping out of the way so Merman crashes through those bars so <laughs> Spider-Man can escape. Uh, Professor- Spider-Man escapes by diving out a window. Yeah. Uh, is it Professor Monster? Dr. Monster? 
Professor Monster. Monster. Yep. Uh, he apparently has figured out that Spider-Man must have had some foresight or something because he says uh, that darn Garia gave him more powers. Right, so he that, notes this. Yeah. He notes Spider-Man. This was an important plot point for me. <laughs> okay. He says Spider-Man had powers I did not know about. Right, that that's an absolute confession by him right now. Spider Man right. had powers I didn't know about, but for the remainder of the episode, he will continue to act as though his computer program is still valid. Dude, there are major variables you did not factor in. Your right. program is worthless now. Why are you still doing this? You obviously should go back and put this new piece of data in. Yeah, it will go alter write a new your conclusion. So. <sighs> So, so this kids is when business analysts are angry that the requirements have changed, but their their users have not gone back to them and informed them that the requirements have changed, and yeah. then are confused when they get a different result than they expected. Come on, tell your people your requirements. <laughs> so Spider Man stumbles well, Takoya stumbles home, dizzy, passing out, remembering things from his nightmare. He tells his family he had a a spill on his motorbike. Right. That clearly sliced open his chest, which he refers to as just a flesh wound. Yeah. There are no bruises or anything anywhere. Right. Uh, which just, just very obvious lacerations. Right. And he is holding it in such a way that makes it look like he is trying to make sure that his lungs and heart stay inside his chest cavity. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, his his brother and sister are correct uh, to immediately call the doctor. Yeah, they do. They call the doctor right away. But by the time the doctor gets there, he's mostly healed up. He's doing a handstand, but you can see the, like, slice across his chest. Um, what I think happened is when he got sliced across the chest, it also cut up the next five minutes of footage into the <laughs> least comprehensible thing ever because I thought we were going somewhere with this like oh no have we discovered that he's Spider-Man no there's none of that we don't even have the doctor examine him I I don't know what happens in the next five minutes he's in the corner doing a handstand for no reason at all was that part of the heel like do spiders need to be upside down to heal I don't, I don't know. know they don't, they don't tell us Doing a handstand in the corner like it's the and everyone everyone reacts like it's just the most natural thing. Right. And then he's he's asleep. Then he's asleep having a dream and then he a nightmare uh, of going over the falls. And then he wakes up due to spider sense. I don't know how many days it has been since the doctor was here in there where Professor Monster is saying like, ah, all is going according to plan. Like what? What is your plan? Spider-Man's doing a handstand. Is that part of your plan? I don't understand. I I don't either. And it's very strange. Apparently, like a night happened because we're just going to. Yeah, there was another night. Tommy went out to get some photos. And then Spider-Man knows she was kidnapped last night. It feels like last night we should have seen something. Yeah, we needed less handstand time, more what happened during this weird night time. So basically, the order of events, Spider-Man gets his chest slit, a yep. doctor comes, Spider-Man yep. goes to sleep, Hitomi yep. gets kidnapped, Yep. Spider-Man has nightmare, Spider-Man wakes up. And via his spider sense... Can tell that Hitomi is in trouble. Right. At least half of that was not actually filmed on screen. We're just told that in dialogue. Yep. What we do get, though, finally, is the GP7. Because Hitomi is in trouble from far away. As we've mentioned before, Spider-Sense has a weird range in in this show. Weird range, weird, like, setting it off. Because it randomly activates from time to time. Yeah. But it's time to drive the GP7 to kidnap Tatomi, who doesn't yep. know why she's kidnapped. In, like, a medieval castle in the woods? Which we will find is actually a sewer pipe. Yeah. Why was there, like, a castle wall around this? Whatever. So there's some great, like, wood sneaking. <laughs> yeah. Some vine swinging. Yep. Awesome spider roping at some point. Yep. Some nets. Yep, and then the Ninders show up. There's a little bit of outdoor fighting. You know, the way you do. 
Not much. It's mostly sneaking right now. Yeah. I think there's like a, a hot minute where he like ropes a guy around the neck and yanks him off a wall. Yeah. And but all he, of... Go ahead. I was going to say, during this time, uh, the Amazonist is basically saying like, you have to know who Spider-Man is. He always shows up when you're in trouble. Did she actually be in trouble that much? I mean, yeah, I two nights ago. Know. But frankly, Spider-Man was going to be there whether or not she was there. Yeah, it's a strange... I mean, who knows? The Amazonist clearly knows a lot. She's got that secret newspaper personality going on. <laughs> right. For, but they have kidnapped Hitomi just because they know Spider-Man will show up to rescue her. Right. Which I'm I'm not entirely clear is a correct assumption. I mean, it turns out to be correct. I don't think they have enough data to predict that. Yeah, only when he's wearing the Spider-Man suit. When he's regular old Takomi, he leaves her behind all the time. Yeah. I'm surprised he didn't just call the cops to go help her. <laughs> They're still running. Sorry, I need to go crawl through some vents. The cops will take care of you. Yeah. Uh. So now we get the... So he jumps in for the save. Does mm-hmm. like He strikes the Spider-Man pose, and we get the... What I'm only now in episode four realizing is going to happen every episode, the complete theme song backing a full fight between Spider-Man and the Ninders. Yeah, which is great. It's one of my favorite parts of the episode. You have to not think about it a little because remember, the theme song very specifically calls out Leopardon and Leopardon isn't going to show up for a while. So when the theme song says Leopardon, he's still about five minutes away. There's just every episode, two minutes of fighting to the Spider-Man theme song. It's It's great. great. He's fighting on a mountain. He's fighting in the river. He gets Hitomi into the GP7 and tells her to drive off. That note is important later. Yeah. <laughs> so all of that happens. He he puts her in the GP7, sends her home, fights on a mountain, fights in a river. At one point, almost gets drowned in like an inch and a half of water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because eventually he wades into the water, which remember, he saw him going over the falls and that was going to be his doom. Oh no, now he's fighting Merman in the stream. Yeah, Merman is like, aha, the water, my natural element. And he tries to drown Spider-Man in it, but there's seriously, like, the water does not cover Spider-Man's boot. He has to, like, turn Spider-Man's head sideways to get his mouth underwater. Yeah. Just dig up it's some just... rocks so there'll be a little bit of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, dude, just choke him. It's like, the water is adding an extra layer of complexity to this plan. Yeah. Uh... Somehow Spider-Man, like, spider-strings his way out of there. Yep. And then we learn that Merman has a secret power he's been hiding from us all episode. It's machine gas, you know, <laughs> like all the mer people have. Poison <laughs> gas. That famous machine gas. Right. Which, from what I can tell, obscures him by about 20%. <laughs> like it's, it's the best thing. It's it, it's really one of those, it, it's like a D&D thing where it's like, oh, this gives you like 25% chance to miss. I'm like, okay, yeah. well, that is that is a slight improvement over it's what like we have going on. It's visibility. I thought it was poisonous or something, but they both just stand around and breathe it for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's just, it's not machine gas, it's smoke. Smoke, that's yeah. what that is. <laughs> yeah, he's just got some dry ice going on somewhere inside that. Yeah. Um, so now... Where are we? Uh, well, now we just wait for both of them to clear the machine yeah. gas. Like, they wait for the, the for the machine gas to kind of naturally evaporate. And then they, more or less, casually walk over to the top of a waterfall to continue their combat. Right. Well, you know, um, Spider-Man's a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. Apparently. And uh, we're just going to have the Reichenbach fall. Reichenbach fall. Yep. That is that is what happens. He just wanders over to the top of the waterfall, has plenty of time to process. Like, it's not as though he is immediately pursued. He's standing there for a minute like, hey, this looks like my dream. Boy, this rock I'm standing on sure seems to be slippery. Huh. I'm only inches away from the edge there. Like, huh. String your way away. Why are you still standing? He just, he just hangs out and waits. It's, it's like an inch foot deep 
upstream, you might as well just cross to the complete other side and get away from right. the waterfall. Get on the shore. Don't keep. St- but he gets pushed over the edge. Yep. And, and very literally just like pushed over. It's not a major massive struggle. Just like boop. Yeah, this is this is not uh, a high acrobatic Spider-Man. This is Miss Spider-Man drunk. Is that what that smoke does? <laughs> he catches a branch like a like a tree cropping out partway down the waterfall and just hangs onto it for a bit. Right. Where is Merman during this, you might ask? Who knows? I guess he figured he was done. He just, like, he's going on break. Yep. Yep. And uh, Spider-Man's calling out for Garia because he needs, like, more power, more superpowers. Yep. Apparently, the 1,200 superpowers he has isn't enough. Dude, there's, like, you have one hand on that tree. You have a wrist with spider silk in it. Right. You have... All of the powers that you need to solve this problem at your disposal right now. Not not for nothing. That waterfall, I mean, it's it's probably only 20 or 30 feet. There look to be enough outcroppings that he could probably navigate himself down the waterfall without too much energy as well. You have a flying jet that comes to you at your command. <laughs> yeah. But low from the heavens descends a shimmering silver cord. We're we're get about to get real like out of body experiency now, aren't we? Yeah. So we are given to believe that Garia has dropped a like a silver spider silk from the heavens for Spider Man to climb up on, which he does. And then it's just the vine. Yeah, it's just probably the vine that he was holding on to. I don't yep. know. Maybe maybe the the machine gas made him hallucinate. Um, and there's a minute where you're like, oh, okay, so this is this is one of those things where, like, the divine becomes mundane. Like, he sent down a silver thread, and it turned into a vine. And, like, Spider-Man will never know what was true. No. no the, the narrator very matter-of-factly declares what is true. Yeah. Nope. Spider-Man's courage. It's all that mattered. No mumbo-jumbo. But, uh, but before we get to the narrator declaring that... We have to uh, call out Marveler. Yeah, dude, just, he got to the top and called for Marveler, his flying jet. Yep. Could've, Why could've did you not up. do that 30 seconds ago? Uh, Marveler's going to change into Leopardon. And then in an inexplicable cut, Spider-Man jumps into the GP7, which does not have Hitomi in it. He sure does, and because that's part of getting into Marveler slash Leopardon or whatever. Right. So I can only assume... That Spider-Man, in this moment, because the episode is not going to contradict me, had the GP7 just, like, dump Hitomi off on the side of the road in the (laughs) middle of the woods. Sorry, kid, this is as far as the ride goes. Spider-Man needs me. I mean, not for nothing. He has already pretty much done that once in this episode. Twice, I think, in this episode. Yeah. So, yep, nope. Uh, He's... (laughs) He's going to go uh, get Marveler, getting Leopard on, and uh, yeah, Merman is not going to do gonna do too well. There is one beautiful... So we don't really need to talk about this fight scene. It is just like you think it's going to be. Leopard on, arc turn, sword vigor. We do get the fluoroscopic ray, which I think is new. Right, which allows you to see through the smoke, I guess. Yeah, so, so that is significant because we get possibly my favorite moment of this episode, which is giant merman again uses his machine gas mm-hmm. basically to sneak away like a ninja in the smoke. <laughs> yeah. But but it's slow. It's a slow developing gas. Yeah. <laughs> and the and the monster. So this is dude in a rubber suit, like very slowly taking backward steps and waving his hands around like woo. <laughs> as he's disappearing into this very slow rolling smoke yeah it is uh it's not the most dignified escape (laughs) frankly what my favorite part of the battle was was how leopardon defeated those killer blades which was apparently just having them ding off of his chest and fall off (laughs) like I've never seen leopardon actually take a shot that looked like it hurt him 
Like things explode, but it's not like Power Rangers where right. you know right. everyone's like, "Oh, damage!" No, it's oh, well, that dinged off. Okay, well now your blades are on the ground. Yeah, and then that's pretty much it. Then we uh, we used the fluoroscopic ray to see through the gas, which right. was awesome. Fluoroscopic ray is, I mean. It's just the best new addition. Yeah. Fluoroscopic ray. We get some spider string. Arc turn, sword vigor, done. Done. We don't go check on Hitomi. We definitely do not. We get in the car and drive away like a man. <laughs> I mean, there's probably still, you know, a bunch of a bunch of other things in the woods. But no, like <laughs> Spider-Man, he has to drive off into the sunset. Drive off into the sunset. Sorry. Well, the narrator takes one more minute to uh, to spit on the divine. Yeah, it's like, don't worry. There was nothing divine there. The only thing that mattered was Spy- Spider-Man's courage. Courage is what won the day. <laughs> I don't know how it was courageous. Spider-Man was crying out like a child for the divine to save him. Yep. Yep. But Spider-Man That's overcomes. It. Yep. Anything else you want to touch on on that episode before we get out of here? I just, man, that sequence in the middle where clearly they wrote two halves of a plot and had no idea how to connect yeah. them together, that was real bad. It was inexplicable. Like, I mean, I've seen bad things before, but it's just like, oh, um, here's a doctor. Hitomi's standing right there. Oh, now you're asleep. Now you're awake. Hitomi was kidnapped last night. What? <laughs> What? So, so Brian and I are going to slowly roll out a bit of gas and fade off into the background here. Yep. Uh, just will, as gracefully. We will see you guys next week. Find us on the Twitters and the Facebooks, Retrograde Orbit Radio, Mount, Mount Olympus, Olympus Pod. Pod. Yep. We're around. The best way to find us is to go to www.retrogradeorbitradio.com and you will find all of the links to all of the things that we do. It's been great talking to you guys again here on this very normal weekday. Yep. Uh, We will see you guys next week, I guess. So until then, I'm Mark. I'm Brian. Uh, And this has been Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Spider-Man.